Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. Let me get a John on the broader political front here. I've been arguing for, I don't know how many years now, the president needs a phalanx, as in the Roman times, yes. a bunch of soldiers that are at the front ranks ready to take on the enemy and charge. And here you see them doing it. Harry Reid has guts because he's basically saying it's better to get something done than just pretend to be Senate Majority Leader. Right. He's not interested in the form of being a Senate leader. He wants to be the leader. I agree, Chris, and I think they also voted today to... Uh, Unlike Boehner. Yeah, I think they voted today to let Barack Obama be president, finally. Welcome to the show, everybody. American Family Radio, Urban Family Talk. Yes, it's time, and it's Friday. Happy Friday to you. Hope you're going to enjoy um, the weekend and that you're preparing for it and you're gearing up for it. And we have a fantastic program for you today. We're going to talk about what creates success in America for black men. We're going to talk about Amazon destroying Toys R Us. We have Michael Kugelman coming on to discuss foreign policy. And we also have um, Seton Motley of Less Government. He's going to come on and talk to us. So what is going on there? What audio was that you just heard? You heard someone referring to President Obama. You're probably wondering, what was that? That's a flashback because I thought it would be really important for us to take a moment and consider what Chris Matthews' rhetoric was when President Obama was in office. Now, why is that important? Well, yesterday we heard audio from Chris Matthews where he discussed how um, this just isn't fair. You know, this, this just isn't right. Uh, how dare the Republicans institute this? First, they had 60 votes and now they have... Uh, they only need 50 votes or 51 votes to pass a, a nominee. And why, how dare they do that? How soon Chris Matthews forgets that it was his guy, Harry Reid, who did this. And it was Mitch McConnell on the floor of the Senate who said, the Democrats will come to regret this decision because the Republicans were staunchly opposed to it. The 60 vote threshold was meant to prevent a simple majority, which we don't have simple majority rule here in this country. That's what the Electoral College is about. That's what representative government is about. That's why we elect two senators and they go on in, two from each state. That's why we have in the House, the, uh, the number of House members that each state has is directly apportioned to the number of people who live in that state. And that information comes from the census, which is done by the government. I mean, there's a little bit of a method to this madness, isn't there? Yeah, it's pretty awesome. When they went to the simple majority, when they executed the nuclear option, as it's known, the Democrats basically said, look, we're not getting stuff done that we want to get done because of you Republicans. Instead of saying we don't have enough control here, we need to run harder. We need to win more in the midterms. We need to get more senators in here who have D's behind their names so we can implement our agenda and get legislation on the president's desk that we want to pass. Or instead of them saying we need to compromise more, we need to find legislation where we give a little, they give a little, we get a little. They get a little and then they'll sign on to it and we'll just have to, you know, some of the constituents will be angry, but we'll at least get legislation passed that the American people want to see. But no, they wanted to rule with an iron fist. And so they executed the nuclear option and they took the Senate nomination process down to a simple majority vote, 50 plus one. And their plus one was at the time Joe Biden because he was the vice president of the United States and the de facto tiebreaker in the U.S. Senate. So here we are. Years later, and Mitch McConnell's uh, prediction has come true. They are noticeably perplexed. In fact, it's gotten to a fever pitch, so much so that our good friends over at the award-winning Washington Free Beacon have done a fun mashup for us. And as we are wont to do here on the Stacey on the Right show, we want to listen to it. So if you have, uh, you know, your cup of coffee, your hot tea, maybe you're drinking a smoothie, Maybe you're drinking a, a, you know, Coke Zero or a Diet Pepsi, or maybe you're into full sugar drinks and you're having a Barks Root Beer. Whatever your drink of choice is, even if it's just water, I'm, I'm having water. I want you to get your drinks and maybe your snack, your, your cup of almonds or whatever it is that you're snacking on, your popcorn, and enjoy this moment. It's number one. Because there ain't no way to sugarcoat this. Today, Justice Anthony Kennedy announced he's retiring from the Supreme Court. The only swing vote on the Supreme Court is gone. Who cares about anything anymore? I'm going crazy, people. We're looking at a, a, a destruction of the Constitution of the United States, as far as I can tell. They not allowed somebody to come into the Supreme Court for 30 years. 
for 30 years because they won by one vote. It's not going to be acceptable. And Roe v. Wade is doomed. It is gone. And it's not just abortion. It's eliminating affirmative action. It's eliminating even the possibility of any sort of gun control, allowing a greater use of, of the death penalty. You are not a straight white male in America. Right now, you are probably freaking out. I think it's going to be almost like Spanish Civil War stuff. You watch. Get out of my behind. Get out of my vagina. Get out of Against the, Steve, the reality you watch of the what math happens and the if they lay down like the bit. You lay down, if you lay down like the experts are saying, and lay down and accept this as, as history that can't be stopped, you're going to see a political party in serious implosion. What should Senate Democrats do? They have to raise hell. That it is time for you guys to get mean and fight. Are you ready? Yes. I think the Democrats have to say no way, non passario, no one passes yep. this line. And it will be unforgivable if Democrats roll on this. If they allow this to proceed, they're going to look stupid, they're going to look weak, and they're going to be overthrown. In some ways, it feels like all hope is dead and nothing can bring it back. We, we are hearing from the president on this issue, and I do want to well, listen to his comments. He's not going to decide this thing. Say to my friends on the other side of the aisle, you'll regret this. And you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. Oh, as the children like to yell when someone says something um, that's a burn. I love it when they do that. I can't do it properly because I'm not, I'm not a member of the youth anymore and it's not my era. But I can still enjoy it. <laughs> Did you hear the apoplectic moaning and groaning and the <laughs> ejections of sheer terror? They're off their chains. They're like lost in the wilderness, crying out for saving. Well, he's not going to decide. No, I kind of think President Trump is going to decide because he's going to put the nominee forward and the Senate is going to give their advice and consent. And that's going to be it. They're going to have a vote and it's going to be rough. I, I'm, I warn everyone, if you've not felt like you've seen crazy uh, a specific brand of crazy, unhinged crazy. If you feel like you haven't seen it yet, just buckle up. You're going to see it. Is it to the point where they're going to be able to stop this? Well, I don't know. Um, some of the back channel that I've been reading of late has has been about strategy. And with Neil Gorsuch, he didn't have any opinions on the abortion issue. So he didn't really have anything for the Democrats to kind of roast him with or hold him up for vilification. And make no mistake about it, they're aware that abortion is their number one thing, but they've been railing about Supreme Court picks and the danger of overturning Roe v. Wade since 1982. They've literally made it one of their central issues. And this is the part where I just, I don't understand how good God-fearing Christians can really support the Democrats. And I've heard all this stuff about economics and the poor, and I, I understand that, but we have a safety net in this country and we definitely take care of the poor from the overall standpoint. And our private sector organizations, our charitable organizations do a great deal for the poor. But it's the Democrats who have dismantled our mental health care system. It's the Democrats who spent all of the money out of the trust fund that supports Social Security, which is a huge safety net. They take your money. They're supposed to save and invest it and give you back what you've earned. You know, so the money that you they took from you plus some interest Everywhere you look, if you look at the destruction, it's been the Democrats who are right at the center of the maelstrom. And while they're down there wrecking everything, they're screaming about how we just need more abortion. We need more people um, to to be on government services. We need more government power. The government has plenty of power and they're not doing what they're supposed to do with it, which is why the president is trying to to lower it down. And case in point, and we mentioned this yesterday, and I apologize that we didn't get a chance to get to it. We're going to get to it today because this is so important and we have to have this information out there because you're not going to get it on CNN where they have the black host. They have all of the information, uh, the, the powerful network of televisions in every airport in the country and all over all the sports bars, all of the businesses streaming CNN. You would think they'd put information like this out there because this is the kind of stuff, if you hear it and you let it soak in, you can radically alter the tra trajectory of your life by making a few simple decisions. And this is this works for anyone, but the study is specifically about black men and the drivers of their success. Now, this is important to every American because I've 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 you know have have you ever turned on a television network or something? Turn turn on a program, picked up a book, and it's geared towards 
you know, success for men or success for millennials or something like that. You skim through it and you're like, oh, yeah, but this would work for anyone. So their demographic that they're trying to reach is one particular group. But success principles work for everyone. And that's why this is such important information. So uh, this is according to Charles Fane Lehman. And in this piece, he talks about the participation in institutions such as the U.S. military, churches, and marriage are all strongly related to black men's chances of reaching the middle class, according to a new report released Tuesday by AEI. Black Men Making It in America, The Engines of Economic Success for Black Men in America is the name of the report, and it explores the effects which help black men in America avoid poverty and achieve and preserve a middle-class life. That group, the group that they studied, has increased in size over the past 50 years. 57% of black men were in the middle and upper third income brackets in 2016, compared to 38% in 1960. By comparison, the proportions for white, Asian, and Hispanic men have remained roughly constant over the same period of time. So that's more black men accessing the American dream. And when they realized that statistic existed, they wanted to find out why. They say that the precipitous and unique rise provides context to what the report describes as the sobering, if not downright depressing news about black men in America over the past decade, which I'd like to point out Who was the president of the United States over the past decade? A black man. Let's go further. So emphasizing the good news can help correct negative depictions and predictions regarding black men. And this is particularly important to those of us who, my husband's a black man, we have a black son. So I I don't want the negative perceptions that are constantly portrayed in the media to attach themselves to my husband or my son. We are in the middle class. We are not struggling, neither of them have any problems with crime or or an inability to function in American society. Rather, it's the opposite. But that's not what the media portrays. And there are some persistent metrics for certain segments of black men that are negative and continue to trend downward. But overall, black men are improving their slate in life and they wanted to find out why. So they looked at Uh, Well, it's Wilcox, Wendy Wang, and Ronald Mincy looked at data from the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth, 1979 wave, as a nationally representative study of Americans who were aged 14 to 22 in 1979. They tracked their lives and looked at them and basically kept up with them until 2016. So they specifically looked at the approximately 850 black men who were included in that in the, it's the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth, 1979's wave. They looked at the 850 black men who were inside that, that sample group. The cohort wasn't doing so well, with 67% being in the lowest third of the income distribution while they were in their teens and early 20s. 22% of the white peers were in the lower income distribution. So you could see right off the bat, they started from a place of disadvantage. But in line with the national trend, Over time, the group fared better. By the time these same 850 black men were in their 30s, they were only 44% of them in the bottom third. By their 50s, there were 52% in the bottom third, which was a decline, but still better than the number that existed when they were in their early 20s. Now, the black men who reached the upper two-thirds of the income distribution were different from their less successful peers in a number of ways. Middle-class black men are more likely to have graduated from college, be working full-time, and be married. As young people, they were more likely to have attended church, enrolled in the military, and according to a standardized test administered by the study's author, they had a higher sense of agency over themselves and the world around them, which directly contradicts what the Democrats are constantly telling black people in America, that we are at the whims of the white man, that white people want to control us and keep us down, that white people are constantly working to institute racist policies over black communities, that white people want control of black bodies and black thought, that white people are actually to blame for anything bad that happens to a black person in America. Those are all lies, but they're constantly repeated over and over and over again. And if you don't feel like you have any control over yourself, any self-agency, you'll immediately believe those lies, adopt them as your own mantra, and you won't take responsibility for poor choices that you've made. The men in this survey, in this study, this is a study, they actually joined the military, They advanced their education, they worked, and they got married and chose not to have children repeatedly out of wedlock. And that's how they made it into the upper 
two-thirds of the distribution for income and made successes out of their lives. You'd think I was talking some kind of Greek over here with that. Everyone should know that. Everyone should trumpet that information. It's important. When we get back, we'll have Michael Kugelman of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Stay there. Hi, I'm Will Addison. And I'm Miki. From airing the Addisons on Urban Family Talk. We'd like to invite you to the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference coming up August 17th and 18th. The list of speakers is amazing. We have Ryan Baumberger of the Radiance Foundation, Dr. Clarence Schuler of Building Lasting Relationships, Abraham Hamilton III, Pastor Bert Harper and his wife Jan, Stacy Washington, Lonnie Poindexter, Pastor Dexter Sanders, and we'll be there too. There's a direct attack by the enemy on marriage and family, and babies in the womb are treated like political footballs instead of life. We want to encourage and equip the body of Christ to fight for the restoration of the family. If we can get our families on track, a lot of society's problems could be solved. The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference is from Urban Family Communications, a division of the American Family Association. You can learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. Hi, I'm Crawford Ritz with a Legacy Moment. I don't know about you, but time and experience have taught me not to believe at first glance what I read in the newspapers or see on the news. For example, during the 1996 Olympics, a bomb went off in Centennial Olympic Park there in Atlanta. It was awful. Within days, they had arrested a suspect, and quickly the news media said that the bomber had been caught. Well, they were wrong. The man, in fact, was innocent. The witnesses had given a false report. You see, we need to be very careful about relaying events or situations. We need to ask ourselves, is this really so? I mean, is this really true? Is this really what happened? If we don't know something to be true or false for that matter, then it's best to keep quiet. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19 have some very strong words to say about false witnesses. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, now listen to this line, and a false witness who utters lies. The Bible says that God hates false witnesses who utter lies. I think the positive way of stating this is that God loves the truth and the truth speaker. Those who utter the truth, those who say what really happened and don't add to it, don't take away from it, but speak the pure truth. God is truth. Make it your ambition not to be a false witness, either intentionally or unintentionally. Here's what I want you to remember today. When in doubt, be quiet. The lives and reputations of others have been destroyed by speculation taken as fact. More information about the ministry of Crawford Loritz can be found online at livingalegacy.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being with us today. We have uh, a little bit of a lull in getting our guests, so we are going to continue on with our discussion about this groundbreaking a bit of information. And yes, it's groundbreaking. And the reason why I say that is because when something that's simple is the answer, uh, you know, if there's a problem and you want to solve it and you go looking for the answer and the answer turns out to be something simple, there's a, there's a bit of, it's a weirdness within human beings that exists that sometimes a simple answer isn't good enough for us. Like sometimes if you find out that the answer to a problem or something that's going wrong, that it's something easy. It's an easy fix that only takes a minute or it's an, it's something easy. That's the answer, but it requires you to think differently about something. Sometimes we'll go all the way around Jacob's barn. As my mom used to say, we'll go around that mountain for 40 years. We'll, we'll do whatever we can to avoid changing something that we believe very strongly in. And I think that's what we've seen happen with the Democrats in their fervor to be the savior of the black community. They've implemented, you know, government program after government program after government program. And this 
repetitive reliance on government that has yielded no good results has caused them to kind of look outward and say, well, the reason this doesn't work is because, you know, Republicans, the reason this doesn't work is because evil white people, the reason this doesn't work. And now they've just said, well, black people just can't be helped. It's not that blacks can't be helped. It's that the government isn't the proper vehicle for doing that. So in all of the other cultures, you see blacks from Nigeria and Haiti and other uh, nation states around the world. They come to America, they hit the ground running like other immigrants, and they don't see themselves as black. They don't adopt this narrative that they're oppressed. In fact, in their own communities, they actually mock the fact that black people have been in America for all this time and yet can't seem to make it. While they come in, they get their educations, they form their own tight-knit communities, and they really excel. So much so that we've seen in some universities in California Black student organizations have said, we want delineation between these black immigrants and real black people. That's what they call real black people, because real black people are still struggling with standardized testing, et cetera, et cetera. But these blacks from outside of the country are not. So there's something different about them. And we don't want them changing the way you look at how you're failing us. It's not about other people failing us. What happens to us is about 15 percent of what we experience is outside forces. The other 85% is directly attributable to decisions that we've made and choices, whatever, whatever, however you like to term it, it's us. And that's everybody, not blacks, not Asians, everybody, any person who's alive today, 85% of what you see is their own experiences, choices. um, You know, it's them. The other 15% is outside forces. So if that's the case, then we don't need a government that controls almost 100% of what a person does. And that, so I'm, I'm going to give you the rest of this, and then I want to dive into this article that I found about victimhood on a website I'd never been to before. It's so, it's so interesting how you can just stumble onto something. I really believe it was, you know, it's, it's, it's Providence that I, I stumbled on this, uh, this website. But so interestingly, the study, you know, It didn't find a connection between family structure and childhood and wealth later in life. Wilcox did not understand why this was, given that previous work by him emphasized the importance of family structure for the well-being of black boys. But family structure mattered a lot as men went forward in life. So black men who married did much better than their peers who didn't. Black men benefit financially from the fact that black women are in the labor force in high rates. And... While family structure did not seem to have much of an impact, another variable proved a major roadblock to men's success who are black, and that's interaction with the criminal justice system. So I would say this. While he couldn't find a direct correlation between a black person's childhood experiences in their family and their success in later life, meaning if you come from a broken home or or an unideal situation as a child, you can still turn your life around and put it in the right direction by making good choices yourself as an adult. But I bet you if they went a little deeper and really examined the decisions that people made who came from intact homes, they would find that an intact home situation as a child precipitates much better decisions later in life. Whether or not they looked at that, the fact remains that the thing we have to take away from this is we need to help that 48% of black men who are still in the bottom third by teaching them that they have agency that the majority of what they experience is directly attributable to their decisions and that no matter what kind of home experience they've had, that they can choose to study, choose to, uh, you know, stay away from gang activity, um, choose not to be sexually active in high school so that they're not fathering children out of wedlock. And choices like that will set them up for a better opportunity later in life. Namely, because the study does talk about um, black men joining the military at higher rates, and, it, and it's the truth. The makeup of our military is it, blacks are much more represented in our military than they are in other areas of American life. It's because it's a springboard for success. Not only do they train you and teach you how to live and give you a viable skill set, but there's a higher level of accountability and the work ethic is much, much more ingrained into people in the military. And so it's a great proving ground. It's a great training ground for people to uh, prepare themselves for life in the civilian world. And it's a wonderful way to get outside of your community. 
When you join the military, the first thing they do is they uproot you and make you go live someplace else. And then they keep doing that for your entire first tour. And they keep doing that. You get some say in where you live, but you're, they're definitely not sending you back home to where you came from. And while you're living out and abroad in the world, especially if they send you overseas, you are forever changed. Your outlook on what's normal, what's expected, what's acceptable, all of those things change. So the point to me putting this out there is clearly this should be the study that dominates the news coverage at CNN, besides breaking news, obviously. For, they should do a month-long expose on it. They should interview the, the black men in this cohort, the 850 of them. They should try to reach every one of them and see if they'll come on CNN for a comment. And why do I say CNN? Because CNN has a huge black audience. And this kind of information could empower that person who's feeling so discouraged and upset and maybe looks at their circumstances and says, you know, it's not fair that I'm not growing up middle class. It's not fair that I don't have this advantage or that advantage. It's not fair that I'm saddled with poverty or what have you. And give them the hope for the future that says it really doesn't matter if you're black or white and, or, if, or if you're growing up poor, it's terrible, but there's a way out. If we could have more messaging like that, more people could understand that that's the reality of America and that everyone struggles, but there's a way to struggle less and to experience more, and that's good decision-making. What I just explained to you is probably precisely the reason why it won't be on there, because you can't train up victims if you're telling them that they have agency over their own lives and that they can literally sit down at the age of 17 or 18 years old. And just before they graduate from high school, they can write down a list of goals and they can say, you know what, I'm going to make these goals. And remember, goals are just what you're shooting for. Sometimes you can overshoot and land way beyond what you ever thought you could do. Sometimes you fall short. But it's not that you hit every goal. It's that you had goals and you're working towards something as opposed to sitting around blaming white people or the government or, you know, employers, rich people, people who have too much money, people who have too many cars, you name it. People are just picking something and blaming them for it. So the article that I found is, again, so he talks in this article about being healed. So the article is not about whether or not you're, you know, uh, you know, uh, victimhood in, in the way that I've been discussing politically. But he references chapter five of the book of John. You know that story. It's the man beside the pool of, at Bethsaida. He's been there with an infirmity for 38 years. And so Jesus happens upon the guy. Of course, Jesus already knows that the guy has been there for 38 years. But he asks the guy, he says, do you want to be made well? And the guy is like, oh, my goodness, are you kidding me? You know, um, he's like, of course I do. I do. But I have no one to put me down into the pool when the water stirred up. So when I'm coming, another steps down before me and they get there first. So Jesus just was looking for a yes or no answer. But the guy immediately starts to explain and justify why he's laying there in his victimhood for 38 years. And it goes to the greater issue of whether or not you really want to change. So, oh, okay. (laughs) So suffice it to say, if you want help, this guy could have said, I'll give you, you know, my first year's wages if you get me into that pool first. I just need someone to get me into the pool. But he didn't do that. That's because he was living in his victimhood. What I'm encouraging all of us to do is to find that area where we might be living in our victimhood and decide we're not going to live there anymore. And that includes anyone who's living in a situation that isn't ideal in America, that you have the opportunity to change your mind about the situation that you're in and then change your directory, your trajectory by writing down and setting some goals and saying, I'm not going to be in this position anymore. And then making the jump. because. Obviously, these a whole bunch of these guys did, and this was before the advent of CNN and all of the victimhood, and they are outperforming uh, the entire populace when you look at it by, you know, statistically, statistical comparison. So right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Michael Kugelman, Asia Program Deputy Director for South Asia at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Michael, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. It's good to be back with you. Yeah. So, um, 
The piece is at foreignpolicy.com, false dawn in Afghanistan. Uh, There's a Taliban peace truce. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so as you probably know, uh, several weeks ago, the uh, Taliban, which is the uh, terrorist organization in Afghanistan that's been waging an insurgency war for many years, it agreed to a ceasefire um, for the first time. Um, And the U.S. forces entered Afghanistan back in 2001 um, to fight the Taliban after, pardon me, to uh, remove the Taliban from power. It succeeded in doing so, but the Taliban regroup has been fighting against American and Afghan troops ever since, and it's been endless war um, for 17 years. And so it was a really big deal, and for the first time, the Taliban agreed to stop fighting for only three days. Um, it was done to commemorate uh, the, the Eid holiday uh, celebrated in Afghanistan. And after the three days, um, the fighting started again. But what was so significant about it, in my view, is not just the fact that you had peace break out for the first time in years in Afghanistan, but the images of Afghan soldiers, Afghan civilians, and even Taliban fighters hugging, hugging and smiling, exchanging gifts, exchanging sleep. Everyone was experiencing peace. Many people experiencing peace for the first time. And I think that was remarkable. And uh, many of us thought that maybe that meant that after so many years of war, you'd have people in Afghanistan realize that war isn't worth fighting and that there'd be some new effort to launch some type of peace process. Fortunately, it didn't happen, which really makes these heartwarming images and heartwarming moments all the more heartbreaking. Now that I think we're seeing with the war having begun again, it could be a very long time before there's peace uh, in Afghanistan. Okay, so what what could we do as the nation-state of America? What could we do to uh, help bring about the end of the war there in Afghanistan? I think 17 years is ridiculous, but, I mean, who's asking me? Well, I mean, see, it's it's a complicated story. Um, it's, the Taliban has a very good answer for that. The Taliban has said that the moment that the Americans, that the U.S. troops in Afghanistan stop fighting, um, and the moment that the American government, the U.S. government, agrees to sit down and negotiate with the Taliban, then the war will end. Um, so they make it sound very simple. But I don't know if we should trust the Taliban. Uh, you know, I, I think my own view is that if, if we were to stop fighting and we agreed to leave the country, uh, I think that would just give the Taliban an excuse to keep fighting. Uh, they'd be in a much better position to do a lot more damage and maybe even overthrow the government in Afghanistan and take over the government and run Afghanistan in the horrific way that they did during the 1990s. So. Honestly, I, I've long been of the view that there's very little that we can do in Afghanistan to bring peace. We tried. I mean, we tried to fight the war for almost 17 years. We had uh, 100,000 troops in Afghanistan some years ago, and we weren't able to win the war that way. Now we have about 14,000, 15,000 troops. And I, we certainly can't win the war uh, with, with 15,000 if we couldn't with 100,000. Now, the other problem is that you look at the other alternatives. Uh, sitting down and trying to hash out an agreement with the Taliban to end the war. There's so many disconnects. The U.S. does not want to negotiate with the Taliban. The Taliban says it will only stop fighting if the U.S. does agree to talk to it. And the Taliban really has no reason to stop fighting now. They're doing very well. They're taking over a lot of territory. Um, Afghan troops are completely overmatched. So it's so complicated, and it's so confusing, and it's so heartbreaking. But I don't really see any way in the foreseeable future that anyone, either the Americans or the Afghan government, can do anything to stop this war that's, that's raged for, uh, for so long. And, you know, here in the U.S., we talk about 17 years that we've been there fighting the war. You know, for the Afghans, it's been so much longer than that. Uh, there was seven, there's been 17 years of war, but before that, the Taliban controlled the country, before that, there was a very bloody civil war. And you go even further in history, and you had the Soviet Union occupying Afghanistan. Um, so it's been a really rough uh, few decades for uh, Afghans, and really don't see it getting that much better anytime soon. Wow. Well, I hate to end on that depressing note, but the information that you shared is good for us, too, as a Christian radio network. We can pray about it, and 
certainly petition our elected officials to try to seek other options, whatever those might be. Um, and I really appreciate the information. Thank you so much. I'll put the link to the article at foreignpolicy.com into all the streams. And it's been great to speak with you again. Michael Kugelman, Asian, Asia Program Direct, Deputy Director in South Asia at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Thanks for joining in today. Thank you. All right. So we'll be back with more right after these messages. activity is the new trend. It's not a bad thing unless it has brought a sense of vanity in your life. Two years ago, I was not happy with the number on the scale nor how I looked. I've never been a huge person, but I was, as the old folks would say, healthy. <laughs> I joined a gym, gained a personal trainer, even changed some of my eating habits. The Lord checked me one day and in my spirit said, why are you disgusted with yourself? Be healthy, take care of the temple I've loaned you, but do it because you want to honor this body, which is your responsibility while on this earth. I said, you better let me know, Abba. Psalms 139 verse 14 says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. 15 pounds down, I know that even if I was to never look like Serena Williams with those nice framed worked out arms, I am wonderfully made in his image and so are you. With the heart for the Urban Family, I'm today's Urban Woman, Victory McIntosh. Connect with us more at urbanfamilytalk.com. I'm Will Addison, Director of Urban Family Talk. We desire to be a movement of time tellers. In 1 Chronicles 12.32, it says, The sons of Issachar were men who had understanding of the time to know what Israel ought to do. In these perilous times, God is raising up a people of discernment who will see, pray, and act. We sound the alarm as watchmen. We cry aloud that God's people may be activated for his service. Join the movement at urbanfamilytalk.com. Listen to Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on Urban Family Talk. She's sharp. I mean, did you hear that? Pointed. Remember that you're not only a Christian on Sunday. And insightful. Deception and lies have been accepted as the norm from the Democrats. But most of all, she's on the right. That scripture from the Bible that says the heart of the fool inclines to the left just kept popping into my mind. Stacy on the Right. Now heard weekday afternoons from 2 to 4 Central on Urban Family Talk. This week during our uh, family worship time together, uh, when we turned to the scripture, I was sharing with my family and we were discussing the scripture that says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And I was explaining the whole caterpillar to cocoon to butterfly process. My son said, he's six years old, daddy, daddy, I get it. it it's it's weird. We're like the caterpillars. God provides the cocoon and God's desire all along is even though we're in caterpillar form, is for us to become butterflies. And then look what he said. But you know when we get into trouble, Daddy? When we try to move from caterpillar to butterfly and we skip over God. And when you try to skip over God, you think you have your wings, but you fall flat. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekdays at 5 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. And I had to tell you, I had to fight back tears in the moment because you say, oh Lord, he, he's getting this. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. She went to a protest just about family separation on the border, then she turns around and blames ICE for it, about ICE separating families. So first of all, she's got to get her facts straight. Second of all, if you want to, you want to uh, do away with ICE and abolish ICE, before she says that, she needs to know that ICE took 5,000 criminal aliens off the street in New York that walked out of her sanctuary jails that she supports. She needs to meet with the sheriffs on the northern border about the, the millions of dollars in resources ICE has spent on the northern border of New York to shut down the opioid crisis and, and the cross-border crime. These, these, these people want to make a judgment about ICE. We are enforcing the laws that they enacted. So you have a congressman or senator saying abolish ICE because they're too effective. They're, we're out doing our sworn oath, enforcing the laws that they enacted, and they're going to vilify us for doing it. Yeah, and if they, don't like the way, if they don't like the way the arrests are done, can you ask me, answer if one of those people have ever made arrest in their life that even know the right procedure? I do have to bring you to a New York Times story that says 19 ICE agents, without giving their names, wrote a letter to uh, Secretary Nielsen looking to abolish the agency. What's your response to that? 
No, they, they're not looking to abolish the agency. The HSI branch, which is a part of ICE, they're under a lot of pressure in sanctuary cities. These, these special agents, they want to do child porn investigations. They want to do drug trafficking investigations. But in big cities, the task force members have walked away just because HSI falls under ICE. They want nothing mm. to do with ICE. I met with a Coast Guard the other day. The Coast Guard is having trouble in California working with local law enforcement because they're part of DHS. So it's not about abolishing ICE. HSI, they're, they're frustrated. They want to do their job, but sanctuary cities won't operate with them or work with them. Oh. So they think if they move out and get out from under that ICE moniker, that they'll be able to work better. Mm-hmm. I think that's wrong. Okay. Oh, yeah. So welcome back to the show. Welcome back to Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. It's a pleasure to be with you. Happy Friday to you. I just, it's infuriating to me when I hear this, this, he's a career ICE agent. This is a guy who's been wearing the gun on behalf of this country, apprehending these horrible bad guys protecting our freedoms and liberties at the border his entire career. And when he says that these sanctuary cities refuse to work with them on drug trafficking, drug interdiction, you know, stopping these drug traffickers, stopping the sex traffickers, stopping these gangs of people going around raping these young girls, they won't work with them because they're from ICE. And so some of the agents have said, you know, we got to get this work done. Let's just have this part of our work removed from that, that, that department. Let's join another department of the U.S. government so that we can work with these, these cities, some of the cities that have the worst problems with trafficking and drug selling. They're the ones who are also sanctuary cities and refuse to work with them. So these people are allowed to operate, these criminals. They can do whatever they want because they know they're in a sanctuary city, that the law enforcement isn't going to work with ICE to stop them, that law enforcement isn't going to arrest them or prosecute them for the crimes that they're committing because they're in the country illegally. And so it's basically like a do bad things all you want free card. Can you can you even I mean, as you're listening to this. Can you just. Like, does that work for you? I mean, I, I'm just utterly flummoxed by that. That is absolutely the definition of evil. To say, well, we're a sanctuary city, so even though you know that these individuals are trafficking human beings, they're drugging them up. And, and if, you, if you don't think this is a huge problem, look at the, the work that Hollywood is doing now. They're, they're including human trafficking in a lot of their movies. They're normalizing it. They're basically, look, this happens in America now. This is what's happening. Remember when they, most of the crime drama centered on drug dealing and stopping drug dealers and stuff like that, or they, they centered on uh, serial killers, you know, murderers, things like that, or crimes of passion. Now a ton of the movies, I've just noticed them on uh, Amazon in the, the, hey, you get to watch these movies for free section of Amazon. A lot of them have to do with people having their daughter or their wife kidnapped and how efficient these guys have gotten in drugging these girls up. And they just use the girls like, you know, it's just like a doll laying there drugged up for people to come pay to, to have sex with. And the, again, the leading individual on human trafficking in the United States is Brandon Darby of Breitbart, Texas. He's done all the writing. He's done the research. He's been in these um, holding pens. They're like prisons for young girls where they're held against their will and forced into sexual slavery until they're dead. And he's actually rescued some of these girls and brought them out of that environment. And we have charitable organizations here in this country that work to do that. But are you are you understanding that it's sanctuary city policy that prevents law enforcement from working with immigration and customs enforcement to apprehend the individuals who are doing these heinous crimes? And so you've got the mothers and the fathers at home crying themselves to sleep every night over their daughters. The daughters are drugged up and being used like garbage cans. And you've got Democrats and these sanctuary cities who are enabling all of this to happen. I mean, if that's not enraging and infuriating to you, what's inside your chest? It can't be a beating heart. It cannot be that you think people being here illegally is more important than rescuing these girls out of that situation. It just can't be. And if it is, you know, woe be unto you. Because it's not an angry radio host that you're going to have to deal with. 
It's not my job to judge you or to determine what happens with you for eternity. But think through how you're going to explain that at the judgment seat. Lawbreaking is not going to be tolerated there. If you advocate for it, if, you, if you're in the tank for it, if you think it's politically expedient and you have to support it because all the other ones on the other side are racist, that is not going to fly when it comes time to account for every thought, word, deed, action, or inaction. It's not going to work. And so when you hear the message coming and, and you take heed, that's the wise person who takes heed and changes and changes the direction so that they can escape the coming trouble. And it's the fool who says, yeah, I don't care. I don't like that person. I don't like what they have to say. Or, you know, she, that, 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 that message isn't for me. The fool does that. So you've not, I, I won't be held accountable for you because I've told you the truth. So here he continues on. And the ICE director, he's, this is his appearance on Fox News because he's retiring. He's the acting ICE director. He's not actually the director of ICE. He's the acting director. He scorches the Democrats when he says, go strap a gun to your hip before criticizing the men and women of border control. It's number eight. I think what we need to do is fix the sanctuary cities and outlaw sanctuary cities that are a danger to the American people. And as far as these senators and congressmen vilifying ICE and the Border Patrol, as you said, sir, go strap a gun to your hip. Stand on the line. Stand on that trail at 3 o'clock in the morning in total darkness, waiting on someone to come down that trail to meet you. You don't know if they're an illegal alien or a heavily armed drug trafficker. Do that job. Stand that mm. post. Then badmouth the Border Patrol or ICE agents. Tom, Do 30, the job. 34 years serving our country. We want to thank you for that. How are you feeling today, knowing it's your last day and you're retiring? I'm, I'm very proud to serve my country for 34 years. Uh, it's the biggest honor of my life to be the acting director of ICE. I'm leaving uh, with mixed emotions because I'm leaving in the middle of a fight. Uh, I, I'm, I'm insulted at a lot of the Democratic senators and congressmen that want to vilify the men and women that put their lives online every day for this country. Strap a gun to the hip and leave the safety and security of their homes to defend this nation. And they're going to vilify them. And they're going to abolish ICE for things ICE isn't even doing. They're going to abolish ICE for enforcing the laws that they enacted. It's, it's ridiculous what's going on right now. So I'm leaving with mixed emotions. But I can tell you this, I may be retiring and I, it was a great honor of running this agency, the, great, the greatest honor of wearing a Border Patrol uniform back in the day. But I'm not leaving this fight. So he sounds a lot like so many of us who've served in some part of, you know, the, that type of environment. Uh, you know, when you're on active duty, when you turn in your uniform or you turn in whatever equipment the the Air Force or the Army or the Marines, when you turn that stuff in, you don't go into the private sector and say, well, done with that, you know, you actually go into the private sector and there's a part of you that stays behind with that, with that equipment. And you, in your heart, know that you'll continue to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. You'll continue to love this country as someone who's gone out and given the extra that it takes to be on active duty or in the Coast Guard or, or, or as these men and women have done, the, the actual Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. They aren't going to stop loving this country and wanting the best for everyone who's here. And the other thing that I, I want to point out today that I think is being missed in this discussion about how horrible the Trump administration is to separate children is when people in foreign countries, especially El Salvador and Guatemala and, and Mexico, see Americans protesting against our law enforcement, they think, oh, Americans want us to come there illegally. Surveys don't support that. Most Democrats don't want immigration and customs enforcement abolished. They don't want ICE abolished, even though Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has just come out and now she's joining her voice with other, you know, really ill thought out individuals who are saying they want to abolish ICE. They're just they're just barking at the wind. Most Americans, Democrats included, do not want to abolish an organization that catches MS-13 and stops them from coming into our communities and killing us. So this is a misnomer that is being propagated by media and by Democrats. And you've got to be out there telling if you're especially if you're a Democrat, but if you're a free thinking American, you've got to be out there saying this isn't me. I don't want that. Not only do I not want to dismantle ICE, I want them to be free to do their jobs, even in sanctuary cities. 
Look at how effective the Democrats were last year in shutting down the debate over whether or not sanctuary cities should be defunded or punished by the Department of Justice or Homeland Security for their refusal to cooperate with a federal agency trying to execute their duly mandated position. Laws enacted by Congress that stood up Immigration and Customs Enforcement, they're actually doing what Congress told them to do. No way should that have ever happened, but it did. And so now the conversation has switched over to what they say is the horror at the border. And I read, uh, it was a post, someone had put in the comments that their husband is a physician, he's a pediatrician, and he listened to the audio tapes of the kids crying at the border, which, by the way, the kids that were detained that the audio is from, those, that's audio from kids who were detained during the Obama administration. And she said his, one of his things that he can do, like clockwork, is he can hear a child's cry or a baby's cry, and he can tell you what, exactly what the baby's cry means, whether it's a cry of I'm hungry or I'm starving or I'm exhausted. And we all know this. If, if you have children... We all learn our babies cry. We know when they're just like, you know, kind of warming up, like I need some attention or when they're crying because they're hurt or they're afraid or they're or they're scared. And there's a different sound to all of those different cries. And so he said he claims to be someone who can always hear and discern the cries of babies, no matter who where the baby is, whose baby it is. And he said the babies are screaming in terror. They're they're in trauma. And so my question is, why would he support Parents who bring their children to America, knowing that they're going to be separated from them and experience terror and trauma, why would he support that? He wants us to think he's such a cool dude because he can decipher the cries of babies even when they're strangers, but he doesn't support the policy that would prevent children from ever having to release that cry. They could stay in their home country with their parents and never be separated. Is their home country ideal? Is any home country ideal? I think they're, uh, I saw a statistic this morning, uh, 4,126 American children separated from their parents every day because their parents are criminals. And so when the parent gets arrested, the children are separated from the parent. I also saw a statistic that the 14 plus million American children living in poverty don't have the same level of comfort as children who are detained by ICE and separated from their parents and put into detention facilities because the detention facilities are all air-conditioned, they're all safe, there's no violence in those, and they're under constant supervision and care. And America's children who live in poverty are not in air-conditioned homes. They don't always have electricity. They certainly don't have three meals a day, and they're not constantly supervised by caring individuals who will be held accountable if anything happens to them. Do you see the crazy that's going on here? And so it's, it's time for us as Christians to be wise about this. We have a duty and a mandate to not only be well-informed about this and not believe lies, but for us to pray about this situation and to beseech our Father in heaven to help bring about justice and clarity and to right the wrongs that are going on here so that we can have a sovereign nation that cares about individuals in disadvantaged countries that provides the aid and and care that we have provided all along while maintaining our border and preventing the spread of the disease. And and it's a travesty, this human trafficking that's going on. Taxpayers in America shouldn't be forced to contribute to that. We got to pray about it. We'll be back with hour two right after these important messages from One News Now. Keep it here. (laughs) 